Never Change by Elizabeth Berg. Performed by Elizabeth Berg. About this digital talking book. Navigation of this digital talking book is by chapter at the first navigation level. This digital talking book was produced by Visibility, formerly the Association for the Blind of Western Australia, Inc., in Perth, Western Australia. To support the production of this and other digital talking books, please contact Visibility on country code plus 61, area code 08-9311-8202 or by email library at visibility.com.au The world breaks everyone and afterwards many are strong at the broken places. Ernest Hemingway from A Farewell to Arms Prologue. The Tuesday before it happened was a perfect summer day. Driving through town on my way home, I saw two young girls holding hands as they tried to cross a street against the light. They would start to cross, then stop, start again, stop. Finally, all the traffic sighed and halted, and the girls bolted to the other side of the street and began to laugh and push each other, exhilarated by their survival. Next, I saw an old woman sitting at a bus stop, eating an ice cream cone with the neat precision of a cat. She wore a yellow print house dress and white orthopedic-style sandals, and her purse sat on the bench a slight distance from her, as though it were her companion. One leg was crossed over the other, and her foot swung rhythmically. She stared straight ahead seemingly lost in memories. I passed a very small child walking delicately along a stone wall, holding on to her mother's hand. It was a graceful pas de deux. Love lay strung along the length of their joined extremities. Love and pleasure and heartbreaking certainty. I drove by two boys about eleven years old, riding the hell out of their bicycles as young boys do, their real manhood still so frustratingly far off. You could see their sweet toughness in the straining cords of their necks. Each kept passing the other, shouting roughly, shouting insults, but each always looked back to make sure the other was coming. Two blocks from home, I went past the library, and I knew I could go into the children's room and sit in a chair and watch enjoying every damp curl, every dimpled elbow, every throaty question, every pair of eyes turned upward toward a parent, the wholeness of that trust. I could press my own hands over the children's small prints on the walls of the hamster cage, trying to see what they saw as they saw it. I could turn the pages of a book that one of them had looked at, then left behind. The question, why was this not taken? Yes, and I could stay for pajama story hour as I often had and watch the children who gathered on the carpet with their matted, sleep-scented stuffed animals. I could enjoy the children's unashamed eagerness 
yanking their thumbs out of their mouths and rising up on their knees to see the pictures, resting their hands unselfconsciously on those ahead of them so that they would not lose their balance. I suppose I might then have gone upstairs to the reference room, pulled down a weighty text, and searched for some wondrous fact I had never known. I might once again have sat at a wooden table, my own purse on the chair beside me, waiting for words to offer their touchless embrace. I did not do these things. I headed home, toward what I had come to believe was my destiny. You know people like me. I'm the one who sat on a folding chair out in the hall with a cigar box on my lap, selling tickets to the prom, but never going even though in the late 60s only nerds went to proms. But I would have gone. I would have happily gone. I would have been so happy. I wanted the phone call with the rough voice asking, Would you? I wanted to finger row after row of pastel dresses in silks and chiffons, their sweetheart necks, their wide ribbon ties. I wanted to have some shoes dyed. I thought it was a miracle they could do it. I wanted to put a wrist corsage in my refrigerator, lock the bathroom door, and bathe in perfumed water with rollers in my hair and the transistor at the edge of the sink blaring sugar pie honey bunch. I wanted to allow an hour for the application of all my new Maybelline, suffer the flashbulbs of my parents' eager camera, stay out all night, and eat breakfast before I came home, bleary-eyed and in the know. I didn't get asked. I never once got asked. Not to proms, not to lesser dances, not to movies, not to parties, not for shopping with the girls. I would get talked to, though. I mean, beyond the highs in the hall, beyond the preoccupied chatter in the lunchroom, I got talked to a lot. They would call me on the phone. The pretty girls. They would call and talk to me about things that were serious, their parents' alcoholism, their hidden scoliosis, their possible pregnancies. They talked to me because I knew how to listen, and I gave good advice. I didn't have a lot of personal experience, but I knew things because I read and I watched. That is what there was for me. Those girls talked to me and a boy once, too, because they knew I would never betray them. Of course, they betrayed me constantly. But they didn't really mean to. Probably they didn't know. They didn't think about it that much. I'm the one everybody liked. Myra Lipinski, oh yeah, Myra, she's nice. The one that everybody liked and no one wanted to be with. The odd shape. The socks, those socks. Well, her parents had accents. The face, unfortunate, with its two small eyes, its too wide mouth. The hair, mousy brown, too thin and straight, greasy after half a day, no matter what. Even as a five-year-old, the aunt and uncle who once came to visit, sitting with my mother at the kitchen table, chatting quietly in Polish, and smiling over at me. What are they saying? I asked my mother, coming over to stretch myself out across her lap 
and shyly smiling back at them. What are they saying about me? And my mother, finally breaking into English to tell me, They say you look like your father, and now we are not anymore talking about you. I lay still in her lap, contemplating the yellow and orange pattern of her apron and forbidding myself my thumb until she crossed her legs and dislodged me. So, I sold the tickets and I decorated the gym and I helped win the volleyball games and I sang a good alto in the choir and I lent my notes to anyone who asked. And if people wanted to copy from my test paper, I let them do that too. I did not become bitter. I don't know why. Maybe I didn't think I had the right. After graduation, I stayed here in Ashton, venturing no further than the 22 miles necessary to get to Boston College, where I earned my BSN. I went to nursing school because I knew it would be a way for people to love me and for me to love them, too. This happens in illness. The sad plates of armor separate. The light comes in. At first, I worked in the intensive care unit. I wanted the challenge and the prestige of working in the hardest place. You're eating lunch in the cafeteria, wearing your scrubs, your high-tech stethoscope around your neck, a hemostat clipped onto you somewhere, tourniquets tied onto it. You know a long list of lab values cold. You could intubate if you had to. You can rate heart murmurs and evaluate lung status and draw blood and start IVs better than most of the attending physicians. You see a burst of ventricular tachycardia race across a monitor screen and you save the patient and let the doctor know about it when you get around to it. You can give a lot of drugs that nurses on other floors can't. You can decide when to get certain kinds of tests performed. When you call down to any other department in the hospital and say, this is ICU, they pay attention. You come first. When you say stat, it gets done. Stat. So you're eating lunch and a code is called over the loudspeaker and you get up and run back to the unit. It's likely you'll be needed, no matter where in the hospital the arrest occurred. The other people in the cafeteria watch you leave your bowl of soup sitting there and they nod at you as you pass by. In the army of nurses, you wear four stars. The pay is pretty good, too, especially for a single woman with no obligations, only child with no children, parents, dead. I bought a little two-bedroom house a couple of blocks from the center of town. I bought a Porsche Carrera 911, too. Black, tan leather interior incredible sound system. The boys look when I pull up next to them, then look away. I beat them off the line every time. The problem with intensive care is that the patients usually can't speak. They're on respirators, or they're unconscious, or they have such messed up chemistry that they're confused, or they stay just until they're stabilized, and then they're out of there, and another train wreck comes in. That's what the bad cases are called, train wrecks. It doesn't mean what it sounds like. What it means is, right now, I can't get close to you. You're halfway to death. 
and anyway, I don't have time. So there's no opportunity in the unit to sit at the side of the bed and shoot the breeze with patients, to get to know them, to admire pictures of their children, to style their hair, to slowly help them eat. Not that many of them eat. Tubes. I know a nurse who works in the unit precisely because the patients don't eat. I didn't go to four years of nursing school to load mashed potatoes onto a fork, she says. But I like feeding people. It doesn't feel demeaning. It feels like high privilege. The best day I had in the unit came when we had a boarder, someone who couldn't get put onto the floor where she belonged. It was full. She ate. She sat up in a chair. She was oriented to time, place, and person. She dug in her purse for lipstick after her bath. The unit was light that day. She was my only patient. She told me she had a crush on her doctor. No surprise, everyone had a crush on Dr. LaGuardia with his dark, South American looks. So I told her I'd curl her hair, and she'd look beautiful when he came to visit her. We used four-by-four gauze pads to make rag rollers, and she did look beautiful when he came. I stopped him outside her cubicle, told him to be sure he noticed her hairdo. He's a good guy, Dr. LaGuardia. He walked in the room and stopped dead in his tracks. Where was the beauty contest? He asked in the accent you could feel in your knees. Where's the trophy? Then he told her she could transfer to her floor now. There was a bed available, and twenty minutes later, I was taking care of a gray-faced man with multi-system failure. I stayed working in the unit for a long time. I mixed drugs, counted drops, monitored machines, resuscitated people who arrested, then resuscitated them again when they arrested half an hour later. I rarely had enough time to talk to their distraught family members, I had to walk away from their sad, worried clusters. I had to go and milk chest tubes while they wept and talked in church quiet voices. Oftentimes, I worked in my dreams. I heard the beep-beep of the IV telling me the infusion was completed, the rhythmic sighs of the ventilator, the dull bong of the alarm on the heart monitor. I changed dressings in my sleep emptied urine and bile and drainage from wounds into toilets, sent polyps and kidney stones and spinal fluid to the pathology lab. I tested feces for blood, tested urine for blood, tested vomit for blood, kept track of each ounce that went into a patient and each ounce that came out, monitored levels of consciousness, listened to lungs, to hearts, to various levels of activity in the four quadrants of the abdomen. I awakened after those nights feeling exhausted, feeling like I'd just put in eight hours at the hospital after having just put in eight hours at the hospital, or nine, or sixteen. These days, I work for a Boston agency called ProTemp as a visiting nurse. When I was hired, I asked for easy patients. I was tired of high acuity levels. Now that I've been there for ten years, I don't think I could hear a heart murmur if it were as loud as sandpaper on sandpaper. But I'm happy, and when I sleep now, 
I am back to dreaming only gauzy mysteries. I have some clients I see daily. Rose Banovitz, who lives in a seedy area on Commonwealth Avenue and needs her morning dose of insulin, and who often sings to me in her high, quivery voice. Fitz Walters lives in Chinatown and needs me to check his blood pressure and his wildly erratic heartbeat in order to determine his dose of nitropaste. He goes to strip clubs every night, Fitz, though he is blind. The Schwartzes live in the heart of Brookline and need weekly visits to supervise their medications and to keep them from killing each other. Another once-a-weeker, a black woman in Dorchester appropriately named Marvelous, I will keep on seeing even after I'm no longer paid to help her with her colostomy. I also see one DeWitt Washington because nobody else will put up with the combination of his personality and his neighborhood in Roxbury. I have to go every afternoon and change the dressing on his gunshot wound. I give eye drops daily to a rich woman in Back Bay, Ann Peters, who can't see to do it herself and whose family can't be bothered. And since last week, I've been going to Alston to see a 15-year-old girl named Grace to help her with the baby she just had. I gave her my home number, and she leaves me messages at least once a day. Things like, Okay, his shit looks exactly like scrambled eggs. No way is this normal. All I do is fuck up, and he don't even cry. Can you call me? Sorry for the swears. Can you please call? You know the boy who once called me in high school? That was Chip Reardon. He called because he knew I'd been talking to his girlfriend, Diane Breedenbach. They were having trouble. He wanted advice, some inside information. He felt comfortable asking me. We'd had a lot of classes together, and he knew how carefully I observed things. Once, in fact, after an essay of mine had been read aloud in English, he stopped me after class to compliment me on my perceptiveness. I treasured that small event, carried the memory of it home from school like a wrapped gift. I even decided, foolishly, that had the bell not rung, that conversation might have led to something more. I remember getting home and looking at myself in my parents' full-length mirror, wondering if I'd finally worn something right, something that would make a boy like him really see a girl like me. I'd worn the same outfit a week later, down to the same color tie to hold my hair back, but of course nothing happened. Anyway, when he called that night, I told him only that he shouldn't worry. Diane loved him. I knew that for certain. He thanked me, though it seemed to me that his relief was not so great. But then I decided I was only making that up, trying to make him less invested in her than he really was. After we hung up, I put my fingers to the place his voice had come from. As there is one of me in every high school, there is one of Chip Reardon, too. Other end of the spectrum. Every girl's dream boy. The handsome star athlete with a good head on his shoulders, too. And a genuinely nice guy. Everyone fighting over him for college. He went west. 
That's what he said, to keep from bragging about Stanford. Nobody from Ashton High had ever gotten in there. But now he's back here. I know, because I got a message from my agency asking if I could possibly fit in another client. A man called Chip Reardon, 51 years old, brain tumor, end stage, apparently. Not too much to do. Probably home to die. He'd only need comfort measures. I called my agency back. I said yes, I could take another patient. They told me it would be daily visits at first, starting tomorrow. Then they told me where his parents, with whom he would be staying, lived. It was in the south part of town, a newer, wealthy area that is in marked contrast to the rest of this mostly blue-collar area. It's too far to walk to the hardware store from there, to the library, or the bakery, or the common. But it is close to open areas of farmlands, with their lovely stone walls, their rolling hills, and peaceful populations of sheep and cows. I wrote down his nice address and his terrible diagnosis, entered it next to the 2 p.m. slot for Wednesday. And you know something bad? You know something bad about me? When I wrote that, I felt happy. I thought only one thing. I thought, good, now I can have him. Not that you should think I haven't had my moments. I have had my moments. Some. Moments. You know, the blind date with the guy whose face at first turns in on itself when he sees what he got. But, particularly after age 45, one can make do. One adult female can offer a certain kind of comfort to one adult male. And although they didn't usually stay the night, only two ever stayed the night, I was glad for that. After my rare interludes, I actually prefer a sandwich alone at my own kitchen table. I know I'm better off sitting under the fluorescent light in my bathrobe, alternating bites of pickle with my ham and cheese, turning the pages of the chamber's catalog and finding the one thing I'll let myself order. That's much better than the smiley conversations I endure when they stay, the awkward partings in the morning, the indignity of picking the guy's hair from my sink when I know I'll never see him again. Better to eat the sandwich and then look to see if any Mary Tyler Moores are on, where Mary still lives in the old apartment. The only thing wrong with that show is that they acted like Rhoda was unattractive. People think women like me should settle, that we should not aspire to certain things. Well, I had a crush on Chip Ridden, too, just like all the other girls. I had a full-time longing that went beyond the brief fantasy I enjoyed that day after English class. I saw him kissing me. I was not a different person when I imagined this. I saw him kissing me. I was aware that if most kids knew that, they'd snort their disapproval. They wanted me to have a crush on the guy equivalent of me. But of course I didn't. No one did. I didn't want Thomas Osterhout, 
him with his horrible posture and his stick-out Adam's apple and dandruff dusting the shoulders of black-knit shirts tucked into his high-waisted pants. I didn't want him any more than he wanted me. Probably Thomas kissed Diane in his dreams, rode her around in his battered gremlin while all the jocks stared, their fists shoved into their pockets. Mostly, I have a dog. Don't laugh. Take a look at marriages that have survived a long time and see if it's the dog or the spouse that offers a better package to either partner. The dog can't call the internist for you. He can't accompany you out to dinner or to a show, but he will lie by you the whole time you're sick, and he will listen to every word you say and offer nothing back but acceptance. My dog, Frank is his name, is an 85-pound golden mix selected from the suffering souls at the dog pound. He sat quietly in the corner of his concrete cell, asking for nothing. When I stopped in front of his dank space, he walked up to me and sat down, looked up, held my gaze, and waited. This one, I told the overworked attendant. Frank walked out into the office on the leash I'd brought with me, lifted his leg apologetically against the desk where I filled out the necessary forms, and never again had an accident. Usually, he sleeps smack up against the side of my bed, quiet as a shadow, except on the nights he has dreams. Then he winds through his nose in a way that sounds like a story. Other nights, he senses a need and he jumps up to stretch out next to me. He lies on his side, his back to me. I put my arm around his middle, push up next to him, note with pleasure the salty earth smell of his paws. It's enough, work and frank, or at least it has been until now. On Wednesday morning, I wake up thinking, what? And then I remember. I go into the bathroom, look at myself in the mirror. Well, clear skin, I have that. I've always had that. Straight teeth. I stare a little longer, then go stand on the scale. I could lose weight. That's always been pretty easy for me. Five pounds, no problem. I can lose five pounds in a week. I put my lipstick on carefully. I could get some good mascara, too. I stop for coffee on my way to Rose's. My favorite Dunkin' Donuts is just at the end of my block. It's always open, owned by a three-generation Russian family that barely speaks a word of English, but they are all remarkably friendly. Once, when I was having trouble sleeping, I walked down there in the middle of the night in my pajamas sweatpants and t-shirt, who could tell, and I shot the breeze with the mother, Katrina, who works nights with her husband. The grandmother works mornings, the daughter evenings. The husband was in the back making glazed donuts, and the wife sat down with me and had a cup of cocoa. We didn't talk a lot, but our eye contact was comforting. Katrina did say, where's your dog? And I told her Frank was sleeping. He was, too. He wouldn't get up. This morning, the shop is crowded, but I see that the grandmother has two girls helping her. 
I open the car door, say, Stay, Frank, and then remember he's not with me. I don't bring him when I have to admit someone. Filling out all the forms takes at least an hour. And of course, you don't want to bring your dog until you've asked the patient if it's all right. Rose Banovitz is afraid of dogs, but all my other patients really like him. I told my agency they should put Frank on the payroll. Once, they did. At Christmas time, they cut a check for him. Pay to the order of Frank Dog, it said, and the amount was $5 million. It's in his scrapbook. When I get to Rose's, I see that a few of the lights are out in her hallway. It's hard for me to see when I make my way down to her apartment. The cooked cabbage smell of the place seems even stronger in the dimness. I wonder how long it will take for someone to replace the bulbs. Last time, it took five months. When the lights were finally back on, it felt like Las Vegas walking down that hallway. I'm sure the cockroaches were very upset. It's not always that the landlord doesn't respond to the tenant's requests. Sometimes the tenants don't know they can ask, or they don't know how to, or they don't think it's so bad not having hall lights. At least they have electricity in their apartments. Heat. A lock on the door. Their very own toilet. And you can't take on everything yourself, although in the beginning I tried. You only end up on the phone all day long. You don't get your own work done. At some point, you have to make a decision. Do I want to run for office, or do I want to take care of these patients? Rose is in her slip when she answers the door, her nylons rolled to her knees, one blue plastic slipper on. Oh! she says and starts waving her hands excitedly. You see, it's my nurse. Good morning. I come in, close the door. She starts to cry a little. How you doing, Rose? I pat her shoulder. I have no milk, she says. I sit at the foot of her iron bed, carefully made, covered with a formerly white chenille bedspread missing half its tufts. You don't have any milk, huh? I rummage in my bag for her chart. No, and no orange juice. She sits beside me. Her thin hair is up in a bun, about 3,000 bobby pins at work back there, and a black hairnet over it. Still, strands of gray slip and fall, and these she tucks behind her ears. Did your home health aide come yesterday? Was Tiffany here? No, she didn't come. Oh, Rose, you're supposed to call the agency when that happens. They'll send someone else, remember? The number is on your refrigerator. Oh, yes, I forgot, I forgot. Okay, it's all right. I look at my watch. I can call the home health aide and listen to a lot of bullshit, or I can call my agency and listen to a lot of bullshit, or I can take care of this problem myself and save a whole lot of time. I put my bag down on the floor, zip it closed again. Here's what we'll do, Rose. We need to work together, okay? I'm going to run to the little convenience store, the one right on the corner. I'll get you some milk and some orange juice. Do you have bread? Mm-hmm. I have bread. Do you want some? That's how most of these patients are. They'll give you anything.
No, thank you. I'm just seeing what you need. How about fruit? Do you have any fruit? She looks longingly into my face and begins to sing when Irish eyes are smiling. Okay, Rose. I'm going to go to the store now. I'll be right back. I'll bring you some food, and then I'll give you your insulin. While I'm gone, you get dressed. Can you do that? I'll get dressed. The bus for daycare. I know. I'll be ready. I check my watch, walk quickly back down the hall, thinking I'll be late for DeWitt. I have to see Ann Peters and Fitz Walters before him. I'd call DeWitt. He's the one patient who really gets mad if you're not on time. But the last time I tried to let him know I'd be 15 minutes late, I ended up being half an hour late because I spent so long standing in a payphone listening to him carry on about my incompetence. You fard, he finally said, his grand finale. And I said, no, DeWitt, I am not fired. I am simply late. Same thing, he yelled and hung up. And I went over and did his dressing anyway. And my punishment was that he did not speak to me. By the time I bring Rose's groceries back, she's sitting at the little metal table in her kitchen wearing her favorite black dress. It's a good 40 years old, crepe, semi-formal, with a once daring neckline now made modest by Rose wearing a man's t-shirt beneath it. There is a rhinestone bouquet pinned at the shoulder, all the stones gone cloudy with age. Her battered black shoes are double-knotted, and she wears schoolgirl white socks with them. She has drawn on long, black eyebrows and applied a smear of her ancient coral-colored lipstick to her lower lip. Her open purse rests in her lap. Inside, I see a balled-up hanky, a red plastic coin purse, and her apartment keys on a string. She used to always carry a framed picture of her mother, but the glass got scratched, so now she leaves it sitting on her dresser. Once I picked up that photo and stared into the clear eyes of Rose's long-dead mother, wondering if she could ever have imagined that this was how her baby girl would end up. I put the groceries on the table, fold up the brown paper bag, and then store it at the side of Rose's refrigerator, as she likes me to do. Her supply of bags, plastic and paper, large size and small, is becoming overwhelming. You could probably get rid of a few of these bags, I say. Oh, no, she says. I need them. Maybe not so many, though. I need them. She also has a bunch of rubber bands that she keeps in a kitchen drawer. That's all that's in that drawer, a gigantic nest of rubber bands. Sometimes I stand outside Rose's building and look up at all the windows, and I think, whose apartment is the craziest? When I call Tiffany tonight to yell at her about not showing up, I'll tell her to quietly get rid of a good third of those bags. After a while, you think about fire hazards. All set, Rose, I say, let me give you your shot. Then, after a little while, you can have some breakfast. She stands, stretches mightily, then shuffles over to her bed. She has a routine. She sits and squeezes her eyes shut, hands gripping her knees, 
holds her breath as though she were getting some whopping dose of penicillin rather than this mosquito bite of insulin. I inject her left thigh quickly, then tell her, all done. This time I didn't even feel it, she says, as she does every time. Right, I say, and then, hey, guess what I got us? I saw milk and orange juice and bananas. No, not the groceries. Something else. What? She can't decide whether to be suspicious or thrilled. Too many times she's been offered a bad deal like it's a gift. Would you say you're a gambling type, Rose? She smiles, looks down into her lap. I don't know. I pull two scratch-away betting cards from my jeans pocket. Know what these are? Coupons. Nope. They're betting cards. You scrape off the covering to see what numbers you have. You can win money. From that card? You can get money? Right. Your numbers just have to beat the dealers. Oh, I pick one million. No, Rose, you already have numbers. They give them to you right on the card. We just have to look and see what they are. I hand her a card and she peers closely at it. I don't see any numbers. You have to take the covering off of them, remember? I scratch at my card. Look here. In this case, I got a seven and the dealer got a nine. So I lose. She looks at me, stricken. It's okay. I have three more chances. But let's see what you've got. Together, we scratch away at Rose's card. The bottom set of numbers shows the dealer with four and Rose with five. You won, I tell her. See, you won five bucks. She laughs, claps her hands. I uncover the rest of my numbers. Uh Uh-oh, I lost. But Rose, you won. See how lucky you are. She nods happily. What can I buy? I look around her wreck of an apartment. Suddenly, the balloon deflates. Well, a new dish towel? She asks. Yes, I say, yes, I can get you a new dish towel. And I'll embroider it. She opens the bottom drawer of her dresser and pulls out a large flowered tin. She lifts the lid, shows me skeins of brightly colored floss crammed inside. This was my mother's, you know. She picks up a handful of colors, closes her eyes, holds them against her cheek. Oh, that will be beautiful, Rose. That will be a wonderful thing to do. Yes, that will be a wonderful thing to do. But right now, you really need to eat breakfast. Your driver will be here soon. She nods, stretches out the baggy sleeve of her T-shirt to wipe her nose. Can you make yourself some peanut butter toast and eat a banana? And drink some milk and orange juice, too? Yes, I will. I leave her standing over the toaster, peering down into it. She has to make sure the roaches are out before she puts the bread in. Back in the car, I check my watch. I'm a good 40 minutes behind. Then I remember where I'm going at 2. I look in the rearview mirror, smooth down the cowlick at the side of my head. Then I try to remember the last time I saw Chip Reardon.
It wasn't at graduation. The day before, he'd broken an ankle in three places in a touch football game, and he couldn't come. I remember he got a standing ovation anyway when they called his name. So, it must have been the last day of high school when I last saw him, June 8th, 1968. Chip and I had English together, sixth period. Diane was in that class, too. We all sat in the back, Diane in front of Chip, me across from him. On that day, near the end of the last class, the teacher was reading us some T.S. Eliot, droning on and on, just killing time before the bell. Chip took Diane's purse off the back of her chair. It was a big black leather thing full of intriguing smaller pouches. He started examining everything. I remember thinking how lucky she was that he was so interested in her. And I remember being surprised that she felt no need to hide anything from him. She knew he'd taken her purse. She'd barely turned around. He looked at every picture in her wallet, started to open a note some friend had written to her, then didn't. It impressed me that he would respect her privacy in this way when he was so boldly going through everything else. And it wasn't for my benefit either. As usual, he had no idea I was watching him. He uncapped the two pens he found, scribbled a few lines with each. He found her Tampax, took it out, and then put it back in its plastic holder. He stroked the rabbit's foot on her keychain, made it hop around his desk. Then he tried on one of her lipsticks, a pink so hot it neared fuchsia, and tapped her on the shoulder to show her. She frowned, rolled her eyes, and turned away. Myra, he whispered. When I looked over at him, he pursed his lips and made small kissing noises. I looked down at my desk, smiled. Want some? he whispered, holding up the tube of lipstick. I shook my head. Come on, he said, tilting his head, running his eyes slowly over my face. It would look good on you. His blonde hair was falling over one dark blue eye. His long legs and their khaki pants stretched out into the aisle. He was wearing Weegians with no socks, and he had the sleeves of his plaid shirt rolled up midway to the elbow. He was killing me. Diane turned around then, snatched her purse back. But he had kept the lipstick, and now he held it out to me. I shook my head again. I knew he didn't mean it. Care to let us in on the joke, Mr. Reardon? The teacher asked suddenly, loudly. But then the bell rang, and everyone started cheering and running out of there. Then years passed, and years passed, and now I am a 51-year-old nurse, and Chip is a 51-year-old man with a brain tumor. And in a few short hours... I will see him again. His eyes will be the same. His hair will not be. DeWitt is sitting out in a lawn chair on his sagging gray wooden porch. His arms are crossed, his eyes narrowed, his foot tapping. He chides me all the way into his apartment, down the hall and into his bedroom, the place where I change his dressing. What's your problem, anyway, he says. 
You don't need to be no Norman Einstein to figure out how to get here on time. You've been here about 15,000 times, about 30,000. You ought to know by now. You say you're going to be here at 12, you best be here at 12. Maybe you mean 12 midnight. You want to come here at 12 midnight? Norman Einstein, I say, lowering my bag to the floor, digging around for supplies. I cover the syringes with the blood pressure cuff. I keep forgetting I'm not supposed to bring syringes into DeWitt's apartment. Alan, I mean. What? Alan Einstein, okay? He climbs onto his bed, rearranges his pillows, sucks at his top lip with his bottom one. Albert, I say. His name was Albert Einstein. Whatever. Now you're just showing off. Would you please lie flat so I can do your dressing? Yeah, he says. After you wait for me. I got a life, too. I'm a businessman. Work 24 hours a day. This is actually true. DeWitt does a fair amount of drug dealing. I got one important call to make, he says, and I got to call right now. Take just a minute. Then you can do my dressing. He stares defiantly at me. I sigh, stare back. It won't do any good to tell DeWitt that all three patients before him took longer than usual today. As far as DeWitt is concerned, there are no other patients. It won't do any good to tell him he's wasting my time just for spite. That's the plan, after all. Well, he says finally, what, DeWitt? I could use some privacy. He picks up the glossy flyer he got last week from the Mercedes dealer. He has a substantial amount of money coming from a settlement, something about what happened when he went to court over his gunshot wound. He turns pointedly away from me, starts punching in numbers. I go out into the living room, sit in his oversized black leather chair. I notice the faint smell of his citrusy cologne. He has one chair, one sofa, One lamp, one television. No rug, no pictures on the wall, no curtains, nothing to read. It's a terrible waiting room. Yeah, this Mr. Washington, I hear DeWitt say. This Bob? Bob, my man, I'm calling to tell you I'm about ready to zero in on my choice. Now, how long it take to get that silver one again? Black interior silence. Then, well, yeah, I want that. I thought that come with it. The bedroom door slams shut, presumably so I won't hear, but I still can. Say I want to add that other CD player instead, DeWitt says. How much it be then? He starts laughing. Ha! No shit! Well, what else that car got? I look at my watch, then I get up, and go knock at the bedroom door. Hold on, I hear him say, and then, Yes? DeWitt. What? I open the door. Stop busting my balls. If you want your dressing changed, I need to do it now. I have another patient to see. You can talk on the phone while I work. Yo, Bob, you hear this? Nurse Ratchet. Yeah, she mad as a wet hen. 
I catch you later. I got to use my wildy charms, get her back on track. He hangs up, smiles at me. He has a beautiful smile, actually. Two big dimples. He unbuttons his shirt, exposes the dressing. I put on my gloves, start pulling gently at the tape, loosening it. Hey, sugar, he says. I don't answer. Aw, cabbage blossom? One side of the dressing is loose. I start on the other side. Come on, Myra, did I bust your balls, really? This other side is more difficult to get off. I pull a bit harder. Ouch! Jesus! I step back, my hands raised high. Just kidding, he says and chuckles. Shit, you like a rabbit, girl. Jump like a little white rabbit. I go back to work. You a white rabbit, he asks. I study the incision. No redness, no swelling, no odor, no excessive drainage. Good granulation tissue. Let's make it easier for you, DeWitt says. We take it one step at a time. Are you white? DeWitt, knock it off. Aw, you no fun today. You nervous. What you so nervous about? I don't answer. Where's your dog? Where's old Frank? He always fun. He had a play date. This is true. The woman across the street, Teresa, has a collie named Ginger who loves Frank. They play together a lot. A play date? That keeps him going for the rest of the time it takes to do his dressing. Good thing I didn't tell him Frank will frolic in Ginger's kiddie pool, be served frosty paws while he watches Air Bud, and come home with a booty bag full of rawhide treats. Sometimes, when I think I'm the only lonely person in the world, I remember Teresa. But she's lucky. She's a widow.